Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. After seven years of preparation, $2 billion in compliance costs, and one false start, the finance industry braced for a seismic regulatory shift today, affecting everything from research to dark pools. It's all about the obscure acronym MIFID II, the second iteration of the Markets in Financial Instruments Directive, a European law that's close to 7,000 pages long. Joining me is Luca Enrique, corporate law professor at the University of Oxford Law School. Luca, the biggest regulatory change in Europe in more than 10 years, has it gotten off to a smooth start or are there any problems? Well, so it appears from today's reports and the industry was preparing uh, for for a long time. There have been some reprieves by the the European authorities, so so far so good. (laughs) Now, will this really make stock markets more transparent or will the industry keep trading on dark pools? Well, hard to predict, but uh, there is evidence that... um, market uh, um, players have uh, come up with uh, new products that uh, will find ways around the the attempts to to make uh, lit markets more prominent in today's uh, fragmented uh, um, EU trading venues uh, uh, market. So fund managers will now have to pay for the research they use in an attempt to avoid conflicts of interest. What effect will that unbundling have on pricing for analysis? Some people say they see an effect already. Well, yes. The big risk is that there will be less uh, financial uh, equity research around, especially for uh, smaller uh, companies, uh, which already are subject to a number of uh, regulatory measures that have increased the cost of being uh, uh, listed. And uh, and, and more generally, the smaller um, players in in the market for uh, uh, research may find a harder time to to sell their their products. So... The first week of the year tends to be quiet anyway, but will trading volumes be lower than usual across Europe in the short term? Oh, that, that's very difficult to tell. There are so many factors there. I, I don't think that we will see that, uh, but, but, uh, but only time will tell. <laughs> um, now, I understand that at least nine of the 28 European Union members have yet to convert the rules into national legislation or regulations. Will that failure affect the implementation of MIFID II? 
I don't think so, because it's relatively frequent for member states not to be in line with legislation when the deadline comes. And there are ways for uh, European uh, institutions and also for member states to deal with that. Of course, there will be some more uncertainty, uh, more, more work for, for for lawyers and law firms, but uh, over, overall uh, we have gone through these sort of issues before in relevant areas, such as, for example, the Market Abuse Directive, with no big uh, disruptions, I would say. So how long will it take that sort of refining that you're talking about? How long will that take before it becomes normalized? Oh, I, I think that the, there will not be a time when all will be settled, because as soon as everything will be sorted out, the European uh, policymakers will, will find that there, there are things that have to be improved, uh, adaptations that have to be made in response of market reactions and so on. So this is an area where uh, it will always be the case that there will be new uh, rules, uh, new interpretations, and so on. So... What do you see as the biggest benefit of this? Is this worth all that uh, the companies and the industry have gone through in the last years? I'm quite uh, skeptical about the overall benefits of such a big piece of legislation, if only because uh, underlying it is the idea that uh, policymakers can design markets, markets as, as complicated and as global as equity and securities markets. Uh, so the, the, there is a, a, a high chance that whatever they planned will not turn out as they wished. At the same time, it must be said that on, on a number of issues that are less prominent in, in the commentaries these days, there, there might be an improvement in investor protection uh, because there are a number of measures there that are meant to tackle issues like the one uh, Italy had with uh, retail investors who bought uh, subordinated debt of banks that then went uh, bust. Uh, I think that's an area which is underappreciated at the moment, but may bring some benefits. Will this legislation cause some companies, dissuade them from becoming publicly traded companies? It is possible that um, it, that, that may happen, especially, as I said, because it will be even harder to find uh, um, anyone to, to follow uh, smaller issuers uh, in, in terms of providing research for them, because uh, fewer people will 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 pay for that, uh, in, in, although indirectly, and and therefore uh, there is a, a serious issue with regard to small, medium-sized issuers in Europe now. And. As far as the surveillance of what's going on, will regulators be able to spot risky situations earlier because of MIFID II? Well, for sure the tools are there in the sense that uh, loads of uh, information uh, will have to be provided to regulators uh, about the trading and in, in other areas as well. Whether regulators are 
up to the task and will manage to sieve through all this information and, 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 and timely, uh, re, uh, proactively do something about it is, is another story. Judging from the past, there, there's not much reason to be uh, optimistic, but, uh, but who knows. <laughs> Well, it sounds like you think those $2 billion in compliance costs are $2 billion too much. Thank you for being here. That's Luca Enrique. He's a corporate law professor at the University of Oxford Law School. President Donald Trump has bragged about the record pace of his appointments of federal judges to the bench, but that won't be enough to push the judiciary to the right. The obstacle? Appointments made by his predecessor, Barack Obama. Joining me from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco is Bloomberg News legal reporter Carter K. Marotra. Carter K., there are 12 federal circuit court of appeals in the country which are one step below the Supreme Court. How many courts had Democratic majorities when Obama took office in 2009 and how many when he left office? He's got, uh, there were um, fewer than eight. Uh, right now, the majority for Democratic appointed judges is eight to four. Uh, and, and the president uh, has 15 vacancies at his disposal uh, to, to try to bolster, the, uh, to, uh, to create a, a larger, uh, to shorten the gap, sorry, for, for Republican appointees. Uh, and those currently are not enough to really chip into the majority that, that President Obama was able to build over his eight years. People may question how much of a difference the majority on a court of appeals makes when cases are normally heard by a three-judge panel. But we've talked a lot on this show about on-bank panels. Tell us about those and what happens in those cases. So it's true. Um, if there's a three-judge panel, uh, the political leaning of, of the court may not uh, necessarily uh, be uh, crucial. But when that ruling from the, from the three-judge panel is reviewed by the en banc panel, uh, which could be the entire uh, seat of, of active judges, then, then you have a majority of Democrats or Republicans uh, appointed judges in that court making a decision when politics could, in fact, uh, come into play. Twenty-two of the federal appeals court judges are older than 75. Could retirements give Trump enough to change the balance of power on those courts? Absolutely. Um, with those 15 vacancies now, he can't do much. But over the next few years, uh, if there are judges who, who do retire or who die, uh, uh, increased vacancies could create that opportunity. What we're hearing, though, is that many of those judges who, who are getting up in age may not want to retire for this very reason. They want to avoid creating vacancies that would allow the president to uh, politicize the courts and create uh, uh, um, an opportunity for Republican-appointed judges to grasp control of these crucial courts. I should note that judicial philosophies and political leanings of judges don't always align with the party of the presidents who appoint them. There are plenty of cases to illustrate that, even on the Supreme Court. Tell me about the Seventh Circuit and its decision in April. Cardike? Cardike, are you there? All right. We seem to have lost Cardike, but the Seventh Circuit in uh, is it in Illinois, and it is a Republican-dominated circuit. And yet, in April, it was one of the first courts to actually make a very bold decision. 
There you are, Cardike. I'm glad you're back to explain the Seventh Circuit's decision in April. Cardike? So in, in April, indeed, uh, the Republican Heavy Circuit in Chicago voted 8-3 on Bonk uh, to uh, rule that the 1964 Civil Rights Act uh, that prohibits discrimination was based on sexual orientation. It was, uh, it was a landmark decision and uh, ultimately has reshaped the um, – could reshape uh, the, um, the direction of, uh, of that court. And in, in about 30 seconds, Trump's appointees will have an impact on the three-judge panels and in the trial courts. And isn't, is that where the vast majority of cases are decided? That's right. And, and there, uh, Democratic, uh, sorry, uh, Republican-appointed judges are on pace to, uh, to take the lead. Um, so the majority of federal court cases are going to be determined there. It's those crucial cases, which is sometimes 5 to 10 percent, but those landmarks that are appealed to the circuit courts where, um, where the, the question of the president's uh, ability to reshape is, is up in the air. Well, it's certainly a topic that we are going to be keeping our eye on and counting. Thank you so much. That's Cardike Mirotra, Bloomberg News legal reporter, coming to us from the Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.